Franz Kafka, who was the author of The Trial, once said, My guiding principle is this, guilt is never to be doubted. Kafka's guiding principle leads us to ask, Will we be made to eat the elite's guilt-free meat? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host, Michael Olson. And now, get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Well, hello out there. You are tuned in to the 1,315th edition of the Food Chain Radio Show. Or, hey, perhaps you're among our friends way down there in Port Stanley who are tuned into the Food Chain Podcast at MetroFarm.com. Well, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome aboard. I am Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Folks, there are a lot of ways to make people feel guilty. And so most of us go through life being guilty about something. What if our guilt could be used to make us do something we would otherwise not want to do? Let's give it a try on me. Let's put our collective finger on the chest of Michael Olson and accuse him of being cruel to animals. After all, he does eat meat, and some of that meat does come from factory farms. Let's sit Olson down in a chair and force him to watch videos of poor farm animals being tortured as they are led to their death. Cruel. So cruel. But there's more. So keep jabbing those fingers. Look here, Olson. By eating the meat of factory farmed animals, you are causing the climate to warm, the sea to rise, and the green to turn into brown. Sit him back down in that chair and force him to watch the videos of earth on fire, cities flooding over, and poor fish flopping around in the mud. Cruel, Olson. So very, very cruel. But wait, here comes someone to save Olson's day. They are the elites who have come up with new forms of patented, guilt-free meat to eat. All Olson has to do to atone for all of his guilt is to eat the elite's guilt-free meat. And so, Franz Kafka's guiding principle does lead us to ask, will we be made to eat the elite's guilt-free meat? Here to help us find an answer, we have Amanda Starbuck, who is the Research Director for Food and Water Watch. Amanda, welcome to the food chain. I'm happy to be here. And uh, you're in Washington, D.C., where you run uh, your research out of the offices there of Food and Water Watch. So you folks at Food and Water Watch caught my eye with a white paper titled, Lab Meat Won't End Factory Farms, But Could Entrench Them. So that's a scary proposition if you think about it, and I do. They get us to quit eating food from nature's bounty and get us to eat food from their guilt-free food factory. And only from their guilt-free food factory because all their guilt-free food is made from patented materials and processes. There it is. We are captured and they are entrenched. Amanda, is that kind of what you folks at Food and Water Watch were thinking with your white paper? Yeah, and I think your your introduction, you know, for me, it sounded like the narrative straight from industry playbook. And when I say industry, I don't just mean um, the factory farm industry, the agribusiness industry, but also the oil and gas industry. There's been a shift in the last 20 years to focus less on corporate malfeasance and corporations' um, contribution towards climate crisis, towards animal suffering, towards 
economic injustices and instead focus on individual consumers. It's all about your carbon footprint. It's all about what you do. But at the end of the day, you know, it is important if you have the means and you can to, you know, eat and purchase things according to your values, but it's just a drop in the bucket. We do not have enough wealth at our fingertips as individuals to change the ultimate um, power structures at play here. So that that narrative for me kind of really resonated what would come straight from an industry playbook. And what we're trying to do with this paper is really kind of dial that back, say, you know, look, it's not so much about our individual choices, but we really need to um, address head-on corporate power if we want to have any chance of, of saving our planet. Well, you're right there in the headquarters of corporate power, Washington, D.C., that seems to be where, where it all is generated. And that's uh, what we want to pick up today and follow that thread. But before we do, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about um, the kinds of, of guilt-free meat that we are presented, being presented with. Um, we are being told that, uh, that it's, it's not right to eat food that comes out of factory farms because it... Uh, well, it's cruel to animals and it's uh, deleterious to the environment. And so we're coming up with these wonderful new kinds of foods for us to eat. Uh, and there's no guilt in them. So I'd like to go ha- have you walk us through them, if you would be so kind as to do so. And maybe we can start with the um, cell-cultured foods that are being mm-hmm. placed on our plate. Just uh, a, a day or two ago, I saw a... A story about uh, Bill Gates, um, Jeff Bezos, and uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg investing in a cell-cultured mother's milk. Holy smokes. Interesting. So have you seen yeah, that? <laughs> yeah, so what you're talking about, that one I have not seen yet. Um, <laughs> interesting, especially with everything happening today with the baby formula, right? Well, um, I, I was just, I was amazed at the prescience of, of Bill Gates because this investment was made, I believe, a, a couple of years ago. So, And they actually have figured mm-hmm. out how to culture mother's milk, artificial milk, from human mammary epithelial. Wow. Um, so, uh, (laughs) so there we go. So what is cell cultured foods? What exactly Mm -hmm. are we talking about here? Yeah. So that's probably the more controversial angle when we talk about, um, meat replacements. So the idea of cell cultured meat, it still largely sounds like it comes straight from a science fiction novel, um, the idea of taking uh, stem cells from living animals, from, you know, for instance, the muscle of a cow, let's say, taking that into a sterile laboratory environment and inducing it to grow um, using growth mediums. Um, one of the most controversial ones is called fetal bovine um, serum, and that's basically when a mother cow is slaughtered and her fetus is ripped out of her after she's slaughtered using the serum from that fetus um, is one of the growth mediums among many others to try to get these cells to grow within this laboratory environment. The idea being is that you can eventually grow muscles that can turn into steaks and hamburgers, um, maybe poultry products that are done within a laboratory environment to avoid um, the factory farm. And it's really generated interest among different fellows who normally wouldn't necessarily share (laughs) the same views on these issues. So everything from animal welfare activists who, 
whose ultimate goal is to eliminate livestock production entirely um, to, you know, Silicon Valley startups who want the next big um, investments that they can gain money from to people who are concerned more about the environmental impacts mm-hmm. of livestock farming. So there's three motivations there. Um, one is to end animal cruelty. Two is to reduce the um, deleterious effects on the environment of raising those animals in certain situations. And the third is profit. Absolutely. Yes, yes. There's there's a lot of interest, obviously, in growing consumer interest and understanding that our food system is really not working well for farmers, for animals, and for consumers, and really a desire to find an alternative to that. While not also, you know, having substantial changes to our diet, because let's face it, Americans especially consume large portions of meat. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. So the idea is, well, let's just create something that tastes and, you know, in fact does eventually, you know, originate from an animal, but outside of that system. Mm -hmm. Guilt-free. Uh, supposedly, but you have to kind of pull back the veil a little bit here a to really bit, to see yeah. what's happening. Well, we understand a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we understand, Amanda, that there's only one instance in the world where cell cultured mm-hmm. meat has been approved for sale to consumers, and that would be in Singapore, mm-hmm. and it's by a company called Eat Just. Mm-hmm. So that's just yeah, and you can if you have access to it and the money for it, you can pay about last I heard twenty three dollars for just a few nuggets of these no killed nuggets created in a laboratory. So and it's at a very exclusive um, high end restaurant. So it's definitely not a place that most people would ever have access to or even the means to to pay that money for it. So very much still a novelty at this at this point. Um, we're finding that, and obviously for twenty three dollars for something you can buy at McDonald's for $2. (laughs) Right. We're nowhere near um, the price comparisons that people are used to for purchasing meat. And that's kind of one of the the long-term criticisms of this system is that we're not sure if we can ever bring the prices down enough in order to compete with real meat, with meat from live animals. And if that's the case, is this even going to be a viable solution for many? Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like uh, those with a lot of money to invest are investing in it just to see what will come in the future, perhaps. But um, Bill Gates and, and pals have invested $3.5 million in the mother's milk cell culture endeavor. And uh, they actually have figured out, I guess, um, how to do that. Now, to make it profitable and worthwhile, they say it's going to take three to five years. So... <laughs> Hang in there, and we'll see what happens there. It should be interesting. Mm-hmm. But as it stands now, the cell-cultured meats are something that is possible, maybe not quite so probable in the near future, at least, uh, because you would have to build some very interesting factories. seems like we're going from one factory farm to the next, are we not? Correct. Yeah, we're not eliminating the factory in here. Um, and factory really is, is a good word here and maybe even along the lines of like a pharmaceutical factory because you need to have an incredibly sterile environment in order to, to do this and do this correctly. 
Um, every step along the way has to be sanitized and clean. You have to continuously test for any sort of um, contaminants that can enter into into these processes. And with that in mind, you know, one of the big criticisms toward farm meats is the reliance on antibiotics. Um, it used to be for a growth promotion. Now it's still being used in order to prevent disease um, because animals are, are raised in these crowded conditions where disease is rampant. Well, you're not eliminating that if you're raising animal, you know, live if you're raising meat within a laboratory environment because you still need antibiotics um, in order to prevent disease from proliferating in these instances as well. And we don't know how much of that, the residue from that is going to end up in the final product. And, you know, a recent incidence of, of uh, contamination can be seen with the impact of baby formula that was manufactured in a big factory and contaminated there and uh, resulted in the deaths of a couple babies and a shortage of baby formula throughout the United States. So, you know, having all your food comes from one factory is a bit like having Mm -hmm. all your eggs in one basket. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the other form of guilt-free meat, which is the uh, salad sandwich or the salad burger uh, or the pretend burger, as I like to call them. What is the pretend burger? I have to stay tuned. This is the 1315th edition of the Food Chain Radio Program. Today, we're talking with Amanda Starbuck, research director for Food and Water Watch. And they put out this very interesting white paper that caught my attention and it probably would catch shoes too if you really think about it. And it's, uh, let's see, lab meat won't end factory farms, but could entrench them, entrench them right back. Let's go back for more of What's Eating What on the Food Chain with Michael Olson. Well, we are back, and today, folks, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about guilt-free food. You know they've been pointing the fingers at us for eating meat uh, from factory farms, uh, processors, giant food processing plants, Um, and when it gets right down to it, who the heck wants to, but, you know, it's kind of cheap when it gets right down to it, but so we do, because it's cheap, but... uh, now we're being told that that factory farm is really deleterious uh, to the environment and it's cruel to the animals. So maybe we should not be eating that meat. And maybe we should be very guilty by, the, by doing so. And so there's a way of, of uh, getting rid of our, our guilt, atoning for it, simply by eating the elite's guilt-free meat. And they have three different kinds of it. One is being, or two different kinds. One is being manufactured through cell cultures, kind of like you used to start a house plant. You know, you'd break the tip of it off and you put it in some solution and it would grow roots and pretty soon you'd have a new plant. Well, they're doing that with um, animal tissue as well now, that we've got that good technologically. Um, and if you were in Singapore, you could actually buy some cell-cultured chicken nuggets for a fortune, um, if you really want any. But uh, it's guilt-free. No cruelty to the animals and no harm to the environment, they say. Uh, The other kind of uh, of guilt-free meat is made from plants, Um, plant-based meat. 
What on earth is plant-based meat, Amanda? Good question. Um, so, well, it might seem like something novel and new, and certainly we've seen um, tons and tons of new brands emerging um, every month, it feels like. This is not really a new topic. In fact, you know, if you think about one of the first meat alternatives would probably be, I would say, tofu, which um, is minimally processed, comes from soybeans. And that actually has been a dietary staple in cultures for about a thousand years already. And, you know, used by um, monks, for instance, who wanted to refrain from from eating meat from animals because it has a similar texture and protein content to meat. Um, Similarly, people have made, you know, lentil burgers, bean burgers within their homes, used grains, other things to kind of supplement meat. Um, But there's not a whole lot of opportunity for corporate profit by just selling more tofu or telling people to cook a veggie burger at home. Because anybody so, can make those at home, back. right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, anybody can make them at home. So now there is really a push towards trying to, once again, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, is capitalize off of this consumer guilt over meat by offering products that are, you know, quote-unquote plant-based meat products that you can purchase ready-made at the supermarket. And this is kind of going beyond tofu and a veggie burger to try to taste more and more similar to meat. So again, trying to capture that market of people who maybe would never be a fully vegetarian or really enjoys the flavor of meat, but maybe wants to replace once or twice a week with, you know, a meat alternative. Um, So these are, these do not contain um, any animal cells whatsoever, um, largely contain inputs such as Corn and soy are pretty popular bases. Lots of um, highly processed, really, um, ingredients that go into them in order to mimic the taste and the texture that people are familiar with meat. So this is where um, more popular brands like Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers would would fit into. Mm -hmm. I I went and looked at the ingredients list of the Impossible Burger. I counted 25 different things. (laughs) One of them I could actually pronounce, Mm -hmm. and that was soy. But the rest of them are hard to mm-hmm. pronounce. Um, so, twenty-five. So I do. I don't understand yeah. why someone would want to avoid eating meat because it's harmful to the environment, because it's cruel to animals. So they, why would they want to eat something that is made to look like something you don't want to eat? Does that make sense? <laughs> It does, it does. I think because meat consumption is so ingrained in in our culture, especially in the United States, um, even ingrained with things as, you know, economic, um, having the economic means to purchase meat, even ideas of manliness of what you consume. And so it's really baked into our our culture. So I think, again, it kind of, it's different than the long-term vegetarians who many of them have no interest in this whatsoever, not all of them, um, but more for the people that maybe want to be a bit of a flexitarian approach, Mm -hmm. I would say. Well, the Impossible Burger uh, is made to contain a a genetically modified process uh, that results in this stuff called neem that looks like blood, so that when you fry Mm -hmm. the Impossible Burger, it will bleed as if it were real meat. Um, That's a real stumper. So are these things things guilt-free? Are these these manufactured guilt-free meats from people mm-hmm. who have a lot of money? Are they are they really guilt-free, or are they just telling us 
that they are guilt-free? That's a really good question. I think I would I would maybe reframe it a little bit because I'm trying to steer away from, again, um, individual responsibility into the system that we have. And the last thing I want to do is make people feel guilty for the system that we as individuals did not build but was built by corporations. But, yes, I think that is exactly what these companies are trying to do is, is to proclaim these products as guilt-free while not necessarily being completely transparent about how these processes are actually how they are developed. So, well, are they? I mean, if you if you think about what it's going to take to make an impossible burger, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, putting something together with twenty five different ingredients, um, is are the industrial processes involved in that going to reduce uh, climate change? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, livestock production really is a huge, huge driver of, of climate change, but um, there are other aspects of our agricultural system that are perhaps um, less vilified, but are still very problematic. So one of the reasons why livestock production is so um, polluting towards the environment is because a lot of our factory farm system depends not on animals grazing on you know natural crows and foraging for food, but eating um, a grain diet largely from corn and soybean plants. And so that really drives, within our country, a huge overproduction of corn and overproduction of soybeans. And it's not necessarily a good system for the farmers because overproduction really, you know, drops the amount of that they earn for plants. If there's a surplus in the market, you know, the crop prices go down. But it's really good for these companies that, you know, turn that into livestock feed, um, to ethanol, and also into food additives. So this is basically sort of the, the far end of, like, mm-hmm. processed really junk food. Um, so I guess I would say it's certainly not guilt-free from a nutritional standpoint, um, as well as an environmental standpoint, because there are, you know, this isn't really changing this system and the incentives that overproduce corn and soybeans on monocultures, oftentimes using chemical inputs, fertilizers, and herbicides, um, sometimes using genetically modified um, seeds, which have some controversy in and of themselves. So it's really not that different of a production system in terms of the same inputs, whether you're growing that feed for a factory farm or for an Impossible Burger. You know, and just thinking about the essential business of making food from nature, we have the cow that can graze along on something as useless as grass and turn it into Mm -hmm. something as valuable as protein and milk. Um, and and mm-hmm. there's the chickens that can rummage around and, and scrounge food out of just about anything and turn it into meat and eggs. And we have mm-hmm. hogs that we've been, you know, lugging. Or we've been carrying hogs around all of our human civilization because of their efficiency mm-hmm. at turning nothing into food. So we have these very sil- simple elemental processes that uh, we, you know, somehow we've turned them, we've industrialized those processes, and mm-hmm. kind of fouled them up that way. But the alternative mm-hmm. is the Impossible Burger, which is a, a factory that takes twenty-five different ingredients, mm-hmm. some of which are genetically modified from who knows what, and combines them. It seems like I don't know. 
we made one mistake and we're compounding the whole thing by making another big mistake. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. And we're trying to solve the problem with under the existing paradigm of this system that promotes overproduction of cheap feed on monocultures. We're not fixing the problem here. So how do we fix the problem, Amanda? (laughs) Very good question. Um, So I think what you said was very beautiful in in the sense that there is value to live animals on, you know, on fields and on our farms. You know, I think we produce, we certainly produce more than what the land currently has capacity to to support, um, especially, you know, in places where you have no longer have a diversified farm. Maybe you have a factory farm that mm-hmm. imports feed from, you know, a monoculture crop um, farm over here. And that's really actually a very inefficient way to produce, um, you know, to meat and, and other calories. Um, being because there are, like you mentioned, very valuable roles that livestock can play. You know, I come from the Great Plains, and there there are places where it's too dry and too rugged to really plant crops, but cattle and even bison are raised in our roams, and it ends up being a way, like you said, to turn what might be an inefficient grassland into food for people. Um, and and, even and, on to, and, in, the pro- and in the process, Amanda, and in the process of grazing those worthless lands, mm-hmm reinvigorate them and make them flourish. Absolutely. Uh, so Absolutely. We, so we, um, and then go ahead. Oh yes, and I was going to say and on the farm, you know, what is considered a waste product on a factory farm when you have when you no longer have croplands surrounding the farm because you're no longer diverse and all you do is raise livestock, you have a problem with nutrients, the manure, let's let's face it. Enormous amounts of manure and no not sufficient land around it to, to really absorb those nutrients and that can lead to, you know, contamination of groundwater sources and air contamination and stuff. But when you return to, you know, even out east where you don't have necessarily the prairie, but you can have a smaller diversified crop and livestock system where on one part of the farm you, you raise animals, the other part you raise crops, you can recycle that manure as an input for your yeah. fields and thereby avoid using these terrible chemical um, inputs like fertilizers and herbicides that we know are very harmful to our soil. So the industrialization takes something that is an essential asset, manure, mm-hmm. and turns it into an essential liability, toxic waste. Absolutely. Yep. And then on the other hand, you need to feed your animals. And because you no longer have cropland to feed them on site, you have to ship them from across the country and other areas. So again, you know, like you said, these two alternatives are are still working within that very, very inefficient system. So it's it's not a solution. But what makes that system so attractive to investors is that it can be patented and owned, whereas, you know, mm-hmm. the act of a cow eating grass can't be patented and owned. But the manufacturing of a an impossible burger can be owned and controlled. Yeah. You, nobody else can make yeah. an impossible burger but the impossible company. So. Absolutely. And we've seen that, you know, this commodification and patentization of our food system and other parts of the chain as well. Seeds come to mind. You know, it used to be much more common for farmers to, to save seeds year after year and really be very inventive on their farms and finding new seeds that are really, you know, 
attuned to the local um, geography and the local climatic needs. And now you have companies, you know, Bayer Monsanto, that patents seeds, that patents life, and, you know, goes after farmers that how dare they even try to save their seeds from one year to another. And one thing we do see with these large corporations is the consolidation of our food chain into very, Mm -hmm. very few hands. With respect to these Mm -hmm. uh, guilt-free foods that they were manufacturing, there's what, just four companies that run the show now? Yeah, when we look at, you know, and again, we're talking plant-based meats here just because cell culture meat has not um, scaled up yet. But if we look at plant-based meats, just four companies control about three-quarters the market. So basically, when you spend, you know, a dollar at the supermarket, essentially, on plant-based meat, 75 cents of that dollar goes to one of four companies. Um, And this is really a benchmark that is used by um, the Department of Justice uh, when we look at, you know, market power and market control. And really, anything over like 40 to 60 percent in the hands of four companies is cause for concern. So 75 percent is significant cause for concern. And some of these are not even new companies. Kellogg Company alone takes in about 45, 46% of all plant-based sales because back in in 1999, they acquired Morningstar Farms. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the only new ones that are within that top four would be Beyond Meat, but they still trail behind Kellogg Company and another company known as Maple Leaf Foods. And uh, some of these biggies aren't even don't even belong to the United States of America. Some belong to China. I think Smithfield Food being one. Uh, yeah, actually. So when we talk about the big meat companies, so in terms of the, the big meat companies, they're not as consolidated as, as the um, plant-based meat markets. And you're correct. Um, Smithfield um, within the United States is probably the number four in terms of, of meat sales. But yeah, they, had, they were owned, they purchased, I think it was back in 2015 by WH Group, with it, which is Chinese-owned. Mm-hmm. Um, the top seller of, of meat in the U.S. is JBS, which is um, Brazilian-owned. So only Tyson's and Cargill are, are U.S.-based companies within the top four. So two of the four companies that control 75% of the meat in the United States of America aren't even American companies. They are Brazilian and Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not to you know, try to stoke you know, any kind of fears of like foreign ownership or xenophobia or anything, but I think it is very telling that you know, these, what you see on the package of a Smithfield patty <laughs> is like a nice American farm, you know, family farm looking all happy and stuff like that, but that's, you know, that money is going to corporations halfway across the world, and not going go. to the farmers. So we're going to take a quick break. This is the Food Chain Radio Program. Michael Olson with Amanda Starbuck, Research Director of the Food and Water Watch. When we get back, what can we do so that we don't have to eat the elite's guilt-free meat? Right back. So much to say, so little time to say it on the Food Chain with Michael Olson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what do you think? Do you think we will be made to eat the elite's guilt-free meat? It's easy to make us guilty because we are guilty of so many bad things. One of them is eating meat that is deleterious to the environment, and, and also it's cruel to animals, so we should be guilty for that. And there was a way to atone for our guilt, and that's by eating what the elite want us to eat, which is their guilt-free meat. And how do they make it guilt-free? Well, they 
put it together in factories, and uh, nobody can really see what the heck's going on in their factories, like they can in meat processing plants. So they can say that their meat is guilt-free, but is it? Who knows? Do you know, Amanda? Is it guilt-free? <laughs> um, it's definitely not without its own problems, right? And, and again, it's I think you really hit the nail on the head that the whole point of these meat alternatives is to make consumers feel better, um, but while ignoring the, the systematic changes that we really need to have in our food system, if we want to have a food system that does, you know, reduce animal suffering but produce healthy and sustainable food for everybody. There you go. So how how do we come to grips with the situation that we find ourselves in, which, as I see it, um, is trying to get rid of one bad way of doing things with another bad way of doing things. Is, mm -hmm. it, is it possible for us to go back to the simple way of doing things, which seems to be the right way of doing things? Yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing to fix, right? It would be so much easier if we just had to choose one type of, you know, meat alternative versus actual meat. That'd be so much easier, but it's, it's not going to happen. What we need to really do is, is come to grips with the corporations that really are pulling the strings um, on the system. And I think to really, one thing that is worth mentioning is that many of these, these big meat companies, traditional meat companies that we talked about um, before the break, JBS, Tyson, Smithfield, are actually investing in plant-based alternatives, both plant-based meats and cellular um, agriculture technologies. So it might just happen that they might start to corner the market more and more. And so your dollar at the grocery store, you know, buying, you know, a plant-based burger versus a beef burger might be going to the same company. So we're not going to solve this if we don't address the rampant corporate consolidation that has taken over our food system in the last four decades. Well, Amanda, when, when addressing the issue of corporate consolidation and corporate control of everything, I always bring up the fact mm -hmm. that um, the essential problem with them not doing that is that they have the advantages of economies of scale. If you, mm -hmm. if you have a thousand acres and I have one acre, and um, our, the congressman comes around asking for a donation to his daughter's high school graduation and that uh, he's asking for $10,000. Well, if you have a 1,000 acres, it only costs you $10 an acre. But if I have one acre, mm. it costs me $10,000. So guess who's going to get the vote when, it comes, when the vote mm -hmm. comes around? It's going to be Amanda and her 1,000 acres. So... <laughs> How do we address that economies of scale advantage that those giant corporations have? Yeah, we need to take a look back and kind of learn from the past of how they got so big in the first place. And it, it, some of it does, you know, I guess, um, include rejecting that idea of, of economic efficiency and economies of scale of trumping everything else. Right. And this is, really part of the problem is beginning in, you know, the deregulation that we saw in the 1980s and even the 1990s, there was the shift from, you know, scrutinizing potential mergers, scrutinizing um, business among corporations, less about the impacts on consumers, less about the impacts on farmers, and more about, well, are they just more efficient? Can they, can they produce a product a little bit more efficiently? Well, what happens when a corporation is more, quote-unquote, efficient, oftentimes what that really means is efficient at squeezing as much money out of the supply chain that they possibly can. 
Walmart is very efficient in terms of, you know, purchasing um, and selling and distributing, but they're only that way because their workers are underpaid and many of them are on public benefits. They're that way because they have squeezed the supply chain so tightly that nobody has any other competition and they have to go to Walmart or have nowhere else to sell to. That's hardly an efficient system. And going back to what you mentioned in the beginning in terms of, of baby formula and even among um, meat production at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw how dangerous this idea is. You know, and today, you know, back in February, we had one formula plant that closed down in the United States. Um, and that, even into May, was taking up about 40% of the formula market on a given day off of the shelves. So that, to me, is not by any means efficient when, you know, one trip up in one production plant can jeopardize the ability of mothers across the country to feed their infants. Well, what is it that you folks at Food and Water Watch suggest that can be done about this corporatization or this industrialization of our food chain by which, you know, when one baby food factory shuts down because it's contaminated with bad bugs, the whole nation goes short of baby formula. What, what can we do? Yeah, we need to, I mean, it's very much a multi-pronged approach. And again, it's, it's not a simple solution. You know, we wish it could be, but it's not. And one thing we need to do is really step up our enforcement of our existing antitrust laws that we have in this country. Um, everything from, you know, scrutinizing new mergers that are coming through to even going back and doing what we can to, to retaliate against um, abusive practices. Um, and this also will include even adding new tools within our toolbox. Um, there was a bill that was introduced just recently by Elizabeth Warren and Mondaire Jones that would do just that. It would strengthen, it would give more teeth to the Department of Justice um, in scrutinizing mergers and even you know, ban mergers above a certain size and give our government the tools to go back and to divest and to really break up companies that have gotten too big, so big that workers and consumers are are really struggling. Mm -hmm. So that's that's part of it. And we also need to really shift the focus um, of our food system from overproducing cheap commodities that end up in these unhealthy processed foods or into livestock feed, really give more support to to farmers, to small-scale farmers, especially, you know, diversified farmers who are practicing, you know, ecologically beneficial practices on their farm. And that even means, you know, banning the expansion and the building of new factory farms. That is another thing that we really need to do. Well, I'm for small factories, (laughs) but I'm not so (laughs) certain about big factories when there's only one or two factories Mm -hmm. in the country. Four companies control the fake meat market Mm -hmm. in America. Two of them aren't even American. Um, And they've got that way by consolidating uh, more and more and more small producers into fewer and fewer big producers. And they have a, a very good access to government which I'm going to be the devil's advocate here with respect to passing laws and rules and regulations against factory farming. They have such good access and and Mm -hmm. control of of governmental processes that uh, Mm -hmm. whenever you make a law, um, they figure out how to go in and, and to amend that law to benefit them and chase everybody else out of business. And I think that's one of the ways they become so big and so domineering. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And that's really why we at Food and Waterworks believe that you can just regulate a factory farm so it behaves better. That's why we think we need to ban them because, you know, any regulation we put into place can be manipulated, you know. And just because, I mean, we have the Clean Air Act, we have the Clean Water Act, and even, you know, provisions under those landmark legislation are not necessarily being followed. And we're not necessarily going against, you know, farms that are breaking rules under those laws. And mm-hmm. so, just because you have a rule and a regulation in the books doesn't mean a farm is going to follow it. So that that's why we need really systematic changes, you know, ending the factory farm system and giving farmers the tools and the resources to be able to farm more sustainably. This isn't an inevitable system. This really didn't come about because farmers wanted to trade their economic independence to become corporate, you know, <laughs> contract farmers raising animals and aren't their own. They didn't want that. That step has come into place because of that political power that these companies have had. And so we need a very multi-pronged approach to fight back against that corporate power if we have any hope of, of amending the system. Yeah, I think one of the greatest examples of that is the rule or the rules and regulations against local meat processing facilities. Mm. They've made that process so onerous and so difficult that it's impossible for area ranchers to get together and set up Mm. their own food processing plant. And so what they end up doing is putting their animals on trucks and shipping them way far away where they're processed. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's becoming a very expensive process too, with, with diesel now mm-hmm. at what six dollars and fifty cents or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's actually a really good example because that is in part influenced by these meat packers who are very large who want to try to influence the rules and make it harder and harder for smaller companies to to make it work. And look, we want we want food safety. We want to make sure that any slaughterhouse is, is inspected and is clean and is producing unadulterated food. But at the same time, we do want to make give farmers more options that they can, you know, bring their cattle to, to local markets. You know, look, I, I we did this big project during 2020, you know, when we saw these big um, slaughterhouses closing down because of COVID-19 outbreaks. You know, a single plant in South Dakota closed down. That took off 4% of the nation's pork processing offline immediately. But at the same time, the, the smaller, you know, processors and stuff that we had spoken to, were they had more you know, they were completely backed up from all these farmers who all of a sudden were like, well, wait a second, we need to take our meat somewhere. And so that really did show that, you know, despite this this terrible pandemic going on, those smaller localized processors thrived and really were more resilient than this big model that we've been sold. And the bigger and more consolidated we get, the more vulnerable we become to who knows what. Absolutely. A bug in a factory, Absolutely. you know, shuts down the entire mm-hmm. production of baby formula and and, uh, so mothers and babies freak out across the country uh, because one single plant uh, had a couple bad bugs is there who's going Mm -hmm. to be inspecting these uh, pretend meat factories like the impossible (laughs) burger factory i mean is it is that the fda or the usda or or uh, i don't know who would look at that stuff that's a really good question. I And I need to figure out exactly where this landed. There is a bit of a, a turf war between the FDA and the USDA um, because they have different um, responsibilities now when it comes to foods. USDA largely, you know, monitors, you know, what happens on the farm and in the slaughterhouse and stuff. FDA largely monitors, you know, plant-based, <laughs> plant-based foods in general. And so well, who's going to be 
you know, really the one that's going to be policing this. And the fear is that it'll slip through the cracks. And so that's something that definitely needs to be ironed out before any of these companies are up and running. Um, and also who's going to be, you know, monitoring that these systems are safe, not so unadulterated, but safe. We don't know. We don't know the impacts of making, you know, cells of animals proliferate and grow uh, within a laboratory. It's very similar to the proliferation that happens with the growth of cancer cells. And we don't know what the impacts are even consuming that. And so that's another issue here too, is just having a robust enough regulatory environment to protect us from any potential harmful impacts that can come from the system. There are 25 ingredients, as I counted them. I might have counted wrong. It was early <laughs> in the morning, and um, some of the words confused me. But there are 25 ingredients in an impossible burger. Uh, many of those uh, ingredients, you know, did not come from food. They came from others without, mm -hmm. they're not food. And has anybody mm -hmm. actually looked at what the impact of those, a combination of 25 different ingredients actually is on the human body? That's a wonderful question. I don't think that's getting nearly enough attention. And unfortunately, you know, being labeled as plant-based, kind of has given sort of a green light to companies to claim that they are healthy and really kind of gives them almost a blank slate of like, oh, you must be healthier. You're made with plants. Okay, I'm going to choose this. And the fact is, we don't even know what the full effects are of eating highly processed food, but we are seeing more and more damning evidence on the impact. We know that eating highly processed is not good for you, but the full range of the impacts are actually quite scary. Um, we're just beginning to understand what the impacts are on the microbiome in our human gut from eating highly processed foods and how so many you know, modern diseases might actually trace to having a healthy and balanced gut. And unfortunately, eating highly processed foods ultra-processed foods from which these plant-based meats fall under really can kind of aggravate those issues that start within the human gut. Not to mention being full of saturated fats and other sorts of things that we were told we really need to kind of stay away from. Ultra-processed foods. Oh, mm -hmm. Amanda Starbuck, <laughs> research director at Food and Water Watch. Uh, if somebody has been looking at this as intently as you, surely must have an idea of where we should go. So where should we go? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I mentioned, we really need to invest. We need to invest in our farmers. And these solutions to, you know, the factory farm system, to a fact that we're talking about here today, really need to be farmer-led, right? We can't just hand it over to Silicon Valley investors in order to give a fix, because that's going to leave consumers out of the table and really going to leave farmers off the table. We need to give, you know, farmers the tools and the support to, you know, in some ways return to more family-scale diversified farming systems that we've had in the past. That doesn't mean a complete reversal to the past. I mean, there were things that were done in certain ways that weren't good, um, especially, I think, in terms of social um, and racial injustices within our food system. We need to address and, that uh, as well. That, but we need we, to give farmers the tools. Give it back to the farmers. We just oh, ran out of time, Amanda, but thank you so much for joining oh, us okay. out there. No worries. Remember <laughs> Michael Olson's third law of the food chain, cheap food isn't. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at MetroFarm.com for a listen. Now, go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live. Live.